So December 7th, 2007 is a really important day in, uh, in the Abbott family. Uh, December 7th, 2007 was the day that uh, this picture was taken. This is a picture of my daughter and my son meeting for the first time. We had just gotten off a plane from Guatemala to bring home our daughter, uh, and she was just under a year old, and, and that's uh, my son Caleb meeting her, giving her a kiss on the cheek, which is so cute, uh, and he's got this giant shirt on that says, I'm the big brother, and they met us at the, at the airport, and it was just a, a really, really special moment. This picture, you know, there's, they say pictures say a thousand words. This is one of those pictures for our family. It's a very special moment uh, for us. But it's a moment that we actually weren't sure would ever happen. Uh, we got our first pictures of Eden when she was seven days old. And then we watched for a year almost her grow outside of our home. And it was, it was gut-wrenching because we couldn't bring her home yet. The adoption wasn't finalized. And so we watched her grow under the care of, of other people. Uh, and I'm thankful for that care, but, uh, but it was hard. It was hard to watch her grow away from our, our family. And then right about uh, two months before this picture was taken, we got a call uh, from, from, from our adoption team, and they said, hey, I got, we got to be really honest with you. There are some complications with, uh, with the paperwork and the procedure. Uh, we got we to gotta, uh, have some things happen, some things fall in the right direction, or, or we honestly don't know if your daughter's going to be able to come home. And I was hopeless. I mean, I just, I didn't know what to do. I thought we were at the end of ourselves. Essentially, it was a, a conversation between the Guatemalan government and the U.S. government. And in Guatemala, the adoption was finalized. So Eden had our last name. She was our girl. But she couldn't yet come home. And, uh, and man, I was just distraught over it. Uh, but my wife, who so often reflects the image of God better than I do, uh, she came to me one day and it was a total matter-of-fact conversation. She, she just looks at me and she says, hey, should we move down there for a while? Like, should we just move to Guatemala for a couple months, get it all sorted out, uh, and, and then come home once we get it figured out? Because, because that's our girl. That, that's our family. That, and you don't leave your family alone. If you got a kid stuck in another, another country, another place, you go get them. That's what you do for family. Eventually, it got sorted out, and we got to share this moment. But, uh, but I've, I've always been struck uh, since that conversation uh, about how my wife thinks about family and how far she was willing to go to communicate just how loved Eden was. And, and whether we've experienced it or not in our families, I think that's the type of families that we want to be a part of that live the way my wife does, that, that if you're in need, your family comes and gets you. They don't leave you alone. They'll, they'll travel great distances to, to, show, uh, to show how much they love you. Today, we're, we're looking at the conversion of Paul from Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, are the Gospels. They talk about Jesus' life. The book of Acts is really what happens in the aftermath uh, of that. After Jesus is resurrected, how do people live now? What happens after that? And we see the church coming to life and all these incredible things happening. And so we've been looking at some of these encounters that Jesus is having after his resurrection. And, and this is Paul's interaction with Jesus after he's resurrected. Um, what we're going to see here is that, that God will go to pretty extreme lengths to show how big his love is and, and to bring his family home. And so part of what we've been doing in this series by looking at these interactions is we've been hoping to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. But we've also been trying to, to understand a little bit more what our next right step might be in light 
of who Jesus is. And so as we walk through this conversion story from Acts chapter 9, I'm hoping we see two things. Uh, one, I hope we, uh, we, we see that God invites us to listen long enough to know. Listen long enough to know so, so that we can know enough to move forward. Listen long enough to know so that we can know enough to move forward. Let's keep those things in mind as we read from Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. It's in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can turn to that. If you have an app on your phone, feel free to to follow along there as well. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul. Okay, let's stop there. I know we didn't get very far, but uh, this is going to take just a second to unpack. Uh, We're talking about the conversion of Paul, but this guy is called Saul. What's going on there? Same person. So Saul is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek translation of that Hebrew name. So, uh, so, so he's referred to as Saul and also referred to as Paul, starting in Acts chapter 14. And he refers to himself as Paul when he writes uh, to predominantly Greek churches uh, across across the known world of the time. And so this is the same person who goes on to to boldly preach the gospel, the same person that goes on to write letters that make up most of the New Testament. But here, Saul or Paul is in a very, very different place. Here, he's still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus. So that if he found any uh, those uh, who belonged to the way, that is, followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. All right, I think there are times when our passion can outpace our perspective. When we meet Paul or Saul back in Acts chapter 7, he's persecuting the church. Here's who Paul was. He was a highly educated Jewish man. And he was part of, uh, uh, he'd grown up uh, learning the scriptures. And so he had this education. He had this uh, scriptural background uh, behind him. And he was headed to Damascus to put people in jail who followed Jesus. Now, Damascus was, is a city uh, 135 miles north of Jerusalem. It, it was large. It was prosperous. There was a lot of commerce going in and out of it. And, and the city of Damascus was also very familiar with religious violence. Still to this day, Syria is a place very familiar with people doing violence against each other, something we hear about in the news. So it isn't as though this is some old story that doesn't really matter to us anymore, as though we've evolved past this. This is something that's very present for us. But in Paul's day, there's a historian named Josephus. Uh, And he said, uh, in this time, Greeks and Jews were were doing a lot of battle against each other, doing a lot of uh, violence against each other. They were engaged in constant feuds in this time. And so Paul actually goes to Damascus to to join the ring, essentially, to jump into the ring uh, and add violence to the process. And he starts by targeting followers of Jesus because he believed they were the problem. See, followers of Jesus were the problem. That's what all this violence is all about. It's not, it's not Jews and Greeks. They're, they're not really the problem. It's followers of Jesus that are the problem. Because he believed that they were leading God's people astray by saying Jesus, this man who was crucified as a criminal, was somehow the way to abundant life. And so Christians were the societal ill that needed to be eliminated. So Paul was was intense, he was passionate, he was zealous for God to do God's will. He really wanted to be be used by God. He was studied, he was intelligent, and he was focused on his task. He was headed to Damascus. 
See, I think there are times when we can get so excited about our agenda that we become laser focused on it, even if we're missing obvious signs that things aren't right. 10 years ago, uh, my family and I, we moved to Florida from Indiana. And there's some differences between Florida and Indiana that we had to get used to, that we had to adjust to over time, constant construction on the roads. That's both an Indiana and Florida thing. So just if you're wondering, I think that's just everywhere is always under construction. Wearing scarves when it's just below 85 degrees, that's pretty much just a Florida thing. uh, And you have to adjust to these types of things. Another thing that you have to adjust to, or that I've had to adjust to, uh, is is, uh, that that things grow all the time. Plants just constantly grow in Florida. In Indiana, you get like a four-month break from having to mow the grass because everything's dead and it's cold and rainy and and snowy and all those things, so you get this break. But not here in Florida, things just grow all the time. And for those of you that don't know me, um, I, uh, I can be a bit particular about certain things, and one of those things is my yard. I love, I love my yard, I love, uh, I love it looking nice. When I drive up after work, it's just something that's like, man, I am so thankful for what I have, and so I wanna keep it really nice. And so one of the things that I'll do uh, when I leave for work in the morning, or I come home from work in the evening, or if we're just out front playing, is I'll usually just pull a few weeds, because things are growing all the time, and weeds will, will choke out the good plants if you don't get rid of them. And so I usually pull a, a weed or two here or there just to keep things looking nice. Again, I'm a little bit particular about things. But there's one time really where I, where I won't, where I'll, where I'll pass by the weeds and go, oh, it's no big deal, I'll get to it later. Even knowing that the, the weeds, if they grow, they choke out the good things, I'll still say, no, I'll get to that later. It's not that big of a deal. It's not, nothing to worry about at this point. And that's when I'm in a hurry. When I'm in a hurry, like, to, like when I have to get to a meeting, maybe I'm running late or I've got something else on my mind, I'll just walk right past them and go, oh, I'll get to that later. And over time, if I do that enough, if I'm hurrying toward my agenda enough, those weeds actually do grow to the point where they start to choke out the good things. See, weeds don't look like that big of a deal when we're in a hurry, and obvious signs that things aren't right can actually get missed. See, Paul was was moving so quickly toward his purpose, but the weed that he left unchecked to grow and take over was hate. That's the weed. It was just growing and growing and growing. And he thought it was okay. And as he raced ahead, he forgot to ask a really important question. God, is this what you want? Because he would have heard an obvious no. See, our racing ahead with our agenda can lead us to our passion outpacing our perspective. And that can lead to hate that squeezes out the good that God wants to do. If he would have asked, he would have heard God say, this isn't what I'm about. And we can hear that and we can go, yeah, of course. Paul was acting ridiculous. I mean, he missed it completely. This isn't what God is about. I I don't even read the Bible all that often. Maybe, you know, I pick it up from time to time and I know God wouldn't want that, wouldn't want him hating people and throwing them in jail and approving of, of, of him killing Christians. Like, of course, that's ridiculous. But let's stop for a second. Are there places where we're so confident in what we're up to that we actually haven't asked God if it's what he's up to? Because that's fertile soil for hate to grow. I mean, have you ever been so passionate to have people know the truth of who God is that you just crush them in a conversation? Have you ever been so passionate about your political opinion that you verbally destroy anyone on social media who thinks differently? Have you ever tried to win an argument and forgot to love the person? Or or maybe you see someone else's 
post and it's a, it's a more quiet killing than, than that. You, 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 don't, you don't respond to their opinion, but you start to drive a wedge between you and them. It kills any chance of real relationship. All right, I'm, I'm gonna ask for, for a show of hands, actually. Uh, and don't worry, this is Grace Driven Ministry, so uh, just, just uh, put your hands up if, if this is you. How many of you have ever unfriended somebody uh, on Facebook because of something they said that's a, that offended you about religion, politics, childcare, choice of schooling? I'll throw food in there. People post food pictures a lot, and actually I have. Because casseroles are ridiculous, and I don't need to see five of them a day. I'm just going to be honest, right? All right, next question. How many of you are actively avoiding someone because you don't want to talk to them? Yeah. If we don't consider that we should ask people not just what they believe, but why they believe it, it's possible that our passion is outpacing our perspective. And what we need to do better is have conversations. Speaking, yes, but listening as well. See, I think because as I asked you, like, is there anyone you're actively avoiding? Is there anyone that you've unfriended? Uh, I think there'd be a common thread. All of us that raised our hands, I think there'd be a common thread. I think the common thread would be the people that we have a hard time with, that we just don't like all that much. They're people that slow us down. I mean, why do we get so mad when someone is driving five miles below the speed limit? Now, that's called the speed limit, right? But in our minds, no, you're being ridiculous, right? Why do we get so mad? Why do we get so mad at the person in public? We've tried to find the line that's the shortest, right? But boom, 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 it's like eight. No, there's like seven people there, and you count the things in their cart, and you're like, yes, I found the shortest line, and boom, you're in. And then the person pulls out 75 coupons, and they start laying them out. Why do we get so mad about that? Why do we get so upset when people think differently than us? Because it slows us down. And in these moments of racing ahead, if we feel anything that's approaching hate for for that person who's driving too slow or has the coupons or thinks differently than us, we should identify it for what it is. Something that can grow and squeeze out the good that God wants to do. And so in these moments, we should slow down. We should stop racing ahead and we should slow down and we should listen. Pew Research just did a study of 10,000 Americans. They found at this moment, we are more polarized, more divided than we ever have been in history. You know what that means? It means we do a lot of talking and we're far less interested in actually listening. We make decisions based on uh, decisions about where we're going to live or, or, or who we're going to marry or who we're going to be friends with based on what we already believe. And we don't stop and listen. See, a conversation requires a balance between speaking and listening. And somewhere along the way, we've lost that balance and we're losing out because of it. And so Paul was headed to Damascus confident in what he was doing, passionate about his agenda, and he was not at all looking for a conversation. But he was about to have one. He was about to have a conversation that he needed to have that would change every other conversation he would ever have. And it's a conversation we all need as well. Chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. 
Love is always loud. When we, when we love, it's always loud. It always cuts through all the noise and it cuts through uncertainty and it cuts through fear and it cuts through hate. It's a light that shines in darkness. Love is always loud. And so this voice of Jesus cuts through the sky in a flashing light and says to Paul, you're headed the wrong way. And I love you too much to let it continue. Let's talk. You see what Jesus does here? He asks Paul a question which invites relationship, and I love that, but he does something more. He does something else. He responds to Paul's question. See, when Paul asks him a question, he doesn't throw his hands up in the air and say, well, if you don't know, then I'm out of here. It's ridiculous. If you don't know all the answers, I mean, I'm right here, I'm gone. No, God doesn't do that. Jesus stands. He, he, he hears the question, and he responds to it. And he responds to it so that Paul can see that Jesus is Lord, but also to show him what kind of Lord he is. Paul asks, who are you? And he responds, I'm Jesus. Remember, Paul is a Jew, and one of the core beliefs of the Jewish people is that God is a God who shows up. See, the Jewish people, the the scriptures, the the prophets that that they read, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they'd long told this story about a great promise the best kind of promise. This great dream that would one day become reality. And the dream was this. God's gonna show up and he's gonna take away all that's wrong and he's gonna make everything right. God would come back for his family. He would close the gap. And not just the idea of God in our hearts, but God actually showing up to dwell with his people like he'd already done before. They said, look back at the Exodus. God's already done it. He already showed up for his people. When we were in slavery, he showed up to set us free, to lead us toward freedom so that we could be his family. He's already done it. He'll do it again, the Jewish people believed. And so the resurrected Jesus standing there more than a man for Paul to deal with, raised, vindicated, meant that Paul had to admit something that's really hard to admit. He had to admit he was wrong. That Jesus wasn't, at best, a normal guy who taught about love and, at worst, a blasphemous man who led a revolt and died a criminal at the hands of the Roman government. No, he had to admit that Jesus is who he said he was. That his claims, that he was God in the flesh, come to save the world, that that claim was true. That he was telling the truth in John chapter 3 when he says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. God had shown up just like he had promised and just like Paul had hoped for, to set things right, not by paying sinners back for the wrong they'd done, not the hate that they'd perpetuated or the conversations they'd left unhad. No, he came to win sinners back from sin and and death by carrying both on his. And we have this tendency, I think I have this tendency also uh, all the time, to forget how significant sin is. Sin, the things that separate us from God, that separate us from others, the the stuff that's in everything that's wrong with the world, how powerful sin is, but it says in the scriptures, the outcome is, is death. And we kind of know it. Potential gets lost, things get pulled apart when we're not being who we should be. And we can't defeat it on our own. If we can, we don't need a savior, but if we can't, we need one. And Jesus knew it. And so in our deep need, he goes to great lengths to show how big his love is. And he shows up. And he took on a cross. 
and the wrath and the justice of God that was ours to bear was taken on by him so that we could be free, not just from the penalty of sin, which is good news in and of itself, not that our slate is just wiped clean, but no, we're freed from the power of sin as well so that we could be slaves no longer to sin, as Paul would later say a little further down the road from this event. That we could be slaves no longer to sin, but we could be freed up for righteousness as adopted sons and daughters. He's a Lord who, who came. He's a Lord who sacrificed and died. He's a Lord who was raised to new life, all to bring us home just like God had promised. Remember, love is always loud. It's supposed to cut through everything that we can hear about ourselves and everything we can hear about others. If you've never heard it, Jesus showing up says this, there is someone who will stop at nothing to say I love you. I connect with the story of, of Paul I think most because I recognize that I race ahead so often. I mean, there are seasons of my life where I just assume God is on board with my agenda and I just race ahead. I don't stop to ask him, God, am I moving the right direction? And I'm so thankful that God doesn't quit on me. And I wanna connect with a father like that who will go to these dramatic links to, to bring his children home, to set us in the right direction, to show up for us. Around here, you'll hear us say from time to time, take as long as you need, but no longer than you have to, to do work with this question. Is Jesus who he said he was? Maybe it's time to do work with that question for the first time. Or again, like Paul had to do work with that question. Is Jesus Lord? Is he the one that should be setting the agenda for you? The one that should be guiding your steps, your decisions? Maybe it's time for that conversation the one conversation you need to have. Jesus says to Paul, he says, get up and then I'll let you know more. This is very similar to how Abraham was called back in the Old Testament. He says to Abraham, God does, go to the land I will show you. Paul didn't know everything. He didn't know how it was all gonna work out. He didn't have the whole plan mapped out for him by God. He only knew enough to have faith in Jesus as the guide, that's it. And if Jesus asked him to do something, he believed. He had enough faith to say, it's probably worth it to say yes. And so in verse seven, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless because they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Quickly on this, this is, this is significant, I think. The people with Paul, they knew something was going on, but they, they didn't know exactly what it was. They knew something had happened to him, but they couldn't explain it. When we come in contact with Jesus, people around us might know something is different, but, but it may take them some time to know what it is. Another way of saying this is that the miraculous sometimes takes a while to believe. And so if, if we get clarity from, from Jesus about what comes next in our life, if he's calling us to a dramatic change, if he's calling us to, to lay something down or pick something up that, that we've left neglected, if he's calling us to move in a certain direction and we do that, we should be faithful to Jesus, but we should also be graceful with the people around us if it takes them a little while to believe the change in us. We shouldn't be angry with them. We should invite them into the miracle. And so in verse eight, Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So these men that were with him, they led him by hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind 
and he didn't eat or drink anything. We're talking about listening long enough to know. And this process may lead to you hearing something different than you want to hear. See, what Paul expected, he expected as as he was zealously going after what he believed God wanted him to do, if he was going to hear from God, it would be a well done and a pat on the back from God. But what he heard was, stop hating people. Take a difficult journey and trust me. We may expect God to say to us, well, of course you can have that. But what he may say to us is, trust me, it's no good for you. We may hope to hear him take away the the, the difficult circumstances or the uncomfortable reality or the terrible diagnosis, but we might hear him say, not yet, or not at all. And what's at stake in this moment is, do we believe he's Lord? Because if we don't, we won't stop and listen. And we certainly won't follow him on a difficult journey. And it's possible that what we see as an affliction throwing us off schedule might be how God can redeem part of our story because it might draw us to him. It won't lessen the pain, but it might give us hope in the midst of it. So if you're here uh, this morning and and you're hurting and you're struggling, I really am sorry. I, I wish it wasn't that way, but part of how God might redeem the pain you're going through by drawing you to him. The listening may take longer than we'd like, but it'll be worth the wait to listen long enough to know that you're loved by Jesus. This story of what God is up to with Paul actually adds a cast member at this point. So in verse 10, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports of this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer in my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. God sends Ananias to Paul. And Ananias is understandably hesitant. He doesn't want to go. I I love Ananias. I think there are sermons worth of material that we could talk and unpack about how Ananias acts here. I love his faith. I love his trust. I love uh, his gentleness with someone who's in a really difficult situation. I love his willingness to believe that the resurrection wasn't limited to just Jesus, but is available to everyone, even the most hateful. Ananias says, I've, I've heard of this guy, and I, and I want to be as far away as possible from, from him. He may try to hurt me, but God says, go. There's no one outside of my love or outside of my grace. There's no one I can't use. Go tell him that. 
and he does. Ananias goes and he places his hands on him and there's amazing things happen. Did you notice uh, as he's placing his hands on him, do you notice what he calls Saul, Paul? Did, did you notice what he calls him? He calls him brother. See, Paul was seeing people and he was calling them enemy. Ananias sees an enemy and he calls him family. He calls him brother. Why? Why would he do that? Because he slowed down and he listened to Jesus. And Jesus says, Paul's loved and he can be used and he can do great things. If there was any seedling of hate that was springing up in Ananias, it was torn out because Ananias stopped and he listened and he allowed his view of people to be shaped by Jesus's view of people. Again, are we listening? After Ananias puts his hand on him, Paul can see again and Paul recognizes in this moment that Jesus offers both sight and salvation. He offers perspective that you might be heading in the wrong way, but he also offers new life to move you in the right way. But there's an important question here. When the scales fall from Paul's eyes, he'd been headed in the wrong way for a long time. So what do you do when you've been headed the wrong way for a long time? You take your next right step. My son, Caleb, who's 13 now, he was the little boy uh, in the picture. He was here, now he's here. Uh, he's, uh, he, he made the track team this year for Maitland Middle School, uh, and he, he, he works so hard, and he's, he's running the mile, which is an event that I ran uh, in, in middle school and high school, and, uh, and it's kind of an emotional thing that he made this team uh, because I love track so much. Um, and I love him, and I'm really proud of him, and all of that. It's all three of those things combined. Uh, but but this is, it's so cool to go to his meets and to cheer him on. Um, but one of the things that I noticed, uh, and I wanted to give a little feedback on now, I respect the coaches. The coach, coach is the coach, and, and so I don't undermine him. Uh, it's a hard thing to do, but I don't. I kind of ask, like, hey, what's the coach teaching you? And he'll say that, and I'm like, hey, if I can, let me add uh, a, little, a little to that. Because uh, one of the things that I heard when I was running it was so helpful for me, I noticed my son did what I did when I was in middle school is you run with your head down. You kind of get your pace and you go head down. And I said, the, the problem with that uh, is, is that you lose pace that way. You lose perspective that way. And so uh, it's best to, to set your eye on the person you want to pass, the next person, and you focus on him until that task is accomplished. Because if you run with your head down, you lose perspective. If you run with your head up and you're looking at the whole track, it gets a little overwhelming and you're like, I don't know if I can accomplish it and I don't know if I can make it all up. Just focus on the person in front of you until that, uh, until that task is accomplished and then you move on to, to the next task. You can't pass everyone at once. You can't cross the finish line in the first lap. Just focus on what comes next. See, Paul didn't know all that was going to come. It wasn't all laid out for him, and he could have been completely overwhelmed by that. But instead, he knew what he needed to do next. He knew what he needed to focus on and go after. And that was be baptized, which is such an interesting thing. I mean, and he, there's some urgency to this as well. I mean, the next thing he does after he gains his sight, he hadn't eaten for three days either because he was having the spiritual moment or he was pouting. I don't know what it was, but like Paul hadn't eaten for three days. You would think after he regains his sight, he would go get a burger, right? But he doesn't. The next thing he does is he goes and gets baptized. Then it says he takes some food. 
It's a reminder that you don't have to know everything to move forward. Paul could have said, uh, look, I see now. I see that Jesus is Lord, and I've been moving the wrong direction, and I'm so sorry for that. I, I repent of that. I've, I've been going the wrong way. I need to head the right way, uh, but I've got a long way to go. I'm unfinished. And we can say the same thing as well. We can say, I'm, I'm not finished. I'm still kind of a mess. I should, I should wait until I get things all figured out and then kind of, kind of make public this faith that I have once I get things all figured out, once I clean up a bit. But, but that's the beauty and the mystery of grace and the beauty and the mystery that we see in baptism. You don't have to be all right. He is. Paul wasn't finished. He was just willing to be changed. In Romans 6, a letter written by Paul, again, a little further down the road, and he reflects on baptism, this thing that he experienced right after the scales fall from his eyes. He says this, don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death? We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live new lives. My hope is that every single person who takes the step of being baptized today is more Christ-like, more a follower of Jesus tomorrow and the day after and the day after. That's the story for all of us. Baptism isn't about arriving. It's about realizing that he's Lord, even if things are unfinished in us. So Paul knew making his faith in Jesus as Savior public was dramatic and important regardless of what Jesus asked him to do after that. So before he preached the gospel, before he planted the church, before he wrote the letters, Paul was baptized. He makes an outward and public declaration of his personal commitment to follow Christ. And for some of us here, that's our next right step. And if it is, take it. Take it today, and we will cheer you on from the beach, and we will cheer you on as you walk out of that water, and we will cheer you on as you take the next step after that. After you accomplish that task and you move on to what comes next, we'll cheer you on there as well. Because it's one thing to say in the privacy of your heart, to listen long enough to know that, that you're a sinner and that you need a savior, but it's another thing to step out in front of people and say from this day forward, I wanna follow that savior. See, our faith is personal, but it was never meant to be private. Commentator C.K. Barrett about this event says, whether this event in Paul's life should be described as a conversion or a call, the fact is it's both. A conversion in the Christian sense is always at the same time a call. Conversion and vocation are complements of each other. We said it at Easter, Jesus never asked us to let go of something unless he tells us what comes next. And what always comes next is go tell. Go tell the story. Go live the story out. And Paul does that. You can read on in Acts in, in chapter 22 and 26. You can read his letters. Galatians chapter one, he tells his, his testimony to people that are following Jesus. He says, this might be some encouragement to you to recognize who Jesus is for me. See, the change in Paul's story was a change in the story. The church expanded, the gospel was preached across the world because Paul was willing to tell his story. So maybe you know the Lord. Maybe you've been baptized in affirmation of it for you. Here's what I hope. I hope that you recognize that you never know how telling your story, that story about how God, who loves so much that he showed up for you, you never know how that 
will give hope to, to a coworker or a neighbor, how to bring joy to a kid in base camp, how to repair a fractured relationship with your family. You never know how slowing down to create time for others will point them to a God who showed up for them too or how helping that person in need will affirm their value as you serve them or how having that conversation can change things or how that simple step in the right direction can lead to the biggest of things. But here's what I know. This is how we're to live in light of the resurrection. This is the life after the resurrection. We're to live as tellers of stories and inviters in of hope, not hate. Because God, in our time of need, showed up for us. He came and he got us. Because that's what you do for family. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's story. That is not a story all too different from ours. Thank you for inviting us to slow down long enough to listen and hear your voice and hear that you are Lord and hear that you are worthy to be our guide. And thank you that you don't just leave us there knowing who you are. You invite us to take next steps following you. I pray that we would be willing to pursue those that where we have clarity on what our next right step is, we wouldn't hesitate to take it no matter how difficult it might be. And where we don't have clarity on what our next right step is, God, I pray that we would continue to listen to you. And I pray that today as we celebrate people taking those next right steps of the most dramatic kind in, in, in baptism, I pray that we cheer like crazy, that our voices are hoarse by the end of the day recognizing that there are some things that are absolutely worth celebrating and people following you and proclaiming your name, which is really what we're made to do, is worth celebrating. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.